<coughs> so today we're going to go through Revelations 2, Revelations 3. There's seven letters that we're going to cover. Uh, that's a lot. We're going to cover them, every single one. Uh, but we're going to start at the beginning and the end of each letter. So I'm going to start with Revelations 2, 1. And then as we go through, I will simply give you the verse number. Uh, for those of you that are new to Timberland, we at Timberline Baptist, we actually stand when we receive the word. So I'd ask that all of you do that as of now. And I'll, I'll share with all of you, I googled every hard word, so I'm going to do my best to say them correctly. Revelation 2.1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden mana, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Verse 26 through 29. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelations 3.1 And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Verse 5-6 through six. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Verses 12 through 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 3.14 And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, verses 21 through 22 to close. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we gather today first to give you thanks and glory. For it is through you that we are strong. It is through you that we are provided for. It is through you that we are protected. Lord, I pray today that as a church body, we not only hear your words, but we receive them with open mind and heart. And we let those words fill our mind, body, and soul so that as we leave here today, we leave stronger as Christians and stronger as a family. Lord, there's so much persecution and evil done to those who simply believe in you. We pray that through you, they, consider, they continue to receive comfort, they continue to receive strength, and that they continue to follow the path that is the one and only righteous path in your name, we pray. Amen. to do today. Are you ready? It's a lot. Um, to recap, John chapter 1. John has just seen this massive, magnificent, amazing, brilliant vision of Jesus and all his glory and all his splendor. Jesus turns to him and says, write, write what you see. And then he gives him this message to seven churches. The order of the churches is given in the postal route. So it's kind of like a horseshoe. It would have started in Ephesus, made its way around Asia Minor, came down to Laodicea. Now, each church would have received all the messages. Ephesus received Smyrna's and Laodicea's. Pergamum's received Thyatira's and Sardis. Everyone received all the message. So while Ephesus had its message, it also received all of them. And then as these churches represented other churches in Asia Minor, they would have given these messages to the other churches. So all the messages here are applicable to all the churches in Asia Minor, and thus they're applicable to us today also. Now each letter uh, follows a fairly similar structure. It begins, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, the, the word angel, it might refer to the pastor of that church. It could, but the word angel almost every single time, in, well, every single time in Revelation refers to an angel. So most likely it's referring to some divine heavenly representation of the church. And then, uh, so that's how the letter begins. It then goes with a description of Jesus. There's a commendation. There's an exhortation. Uh, there's a, a warning. And then there is a, a blessing at the end for the one who conquers. But there's a weight to these letters. There's a lot of weight to them. We're, we're about 60 years from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and what we see, all the churches are beginning to drift away. Five out of the seven are drifting. All seven of them are being tempted uh, with compromise, with complacency, with drifting away from how God has called us to live. In, in God's word in Matthew, we see the church is to be a light of the world, a city set on a hill um, so that we would give light. We would reveal to others who our God is, 
who our king is. And we do that through our love and the way we act. Uh, but when we begin to drift away from Jesus, it's kind of like a dimmer switch, and it's dimming. And, and Ephesus is a little dim, and it goes all the way to Laodicea, where it's just blacked out. Jesus is not even there, but he's on the outside knocking. And so Jesus writes these letters for the purpose of, of shaking them to the core. It's meant to wake them. Sardis, he says, you're dead. Wake up. And so it's meant to wake them, to stir them to faithfulness. And if they respond in faith and in perseverance, they experience great blessing, great reward. But if they ignore it, they'll experience his wrath, which will see that. And so this message, as we come to it today, we have to be careful because it's easy. You're kind of reading Revelation. You kind of want to get to the cool parts where it's like, okay, there's a dragon and there's a beast and there's, an eight, or there's a lamb that's a lion and it's really cool. Uh, and we skim through these chapters. And we go, yep, okay, yep, do better, okay. But, but we have to see that these churches are all beginning to drift. And there's a severe warning that's given to them. And we just need to take that in. Five out of seven churches are drifting here. And if that's the case, 60 years from the death and resurrection, I think we can at least say probably the ratio is close to the same. Majority of churches, of churches are in some sort of drift right now, moving away from following Jesus in full zeal and perseverance to somewhere compromising, somewhere becoming complacent. And so we need to look at that and say, are, where are we in that? Corporately, individually? And, and there's a wait, because if, if we respond in, in faithfulness, there's massive reward, and we'll look at that. But if we respond and say, you know what, I'm, I'm good. I come to church when I want. You know, I'll give if I feel like it. You know, if I don't make it, it's not a big deal. We'll see that Jesus rebukes that and says that if that is your attitude towards the church, you will experience wrath. And so what we understand is that Jesus is coming to the church as a husband, not a tyrant to rebuke and to destroy, but his desire is to stir his desire is to woo them and to show them his love and his grace so while there are very harsh words and good and encouraging words they're all meant to love and to stir the church so they would they would embrace they would stand firm they would wake up and they would hold fast to what god has told them to do and so as we go through and we have a lot of work and Alan said, as long as we're done by 125 for the Seahawks game, we can go. So I don't know if the children's workers will let us go that long. There might be a, a revolt and rebellion, but we're, we're going to try to make our way through as quickly and as thorough as possible. So we're going to begin. Number one, Jesus knows the church. Each of the letters begins with Jesus saying, I know. Five times he says, I know your works. Once he says, I know your tribulation. And once he says, I know where you dwell. Here's the point. Jesus knows the church. It's his bride. It's his body. These letters are not full of guessings. They're not full of speculations. Jesus knows the exact health and condition and status of every one of his churches. Remember the vision in chapter 1. Jesus in all of his glory and splendor, and he's walking amongst what? The lampstands. And what do the lampstands represent? The churches. 
He's with the churches. He knows the churches. He's amongst the churches. And we see, we see this knowledge of Jesus in several ways. Two ways that we see it is just simply in the way Jesus describes himself. Each of these letters begins with a description of Jesus, and the description comes from chapter 1. So remember, last week we said, okay, the vision is meant for the purpose of persevering the church. And we showed how that works. And now we're in chapter 2 and 3 where they're taking the vision of Jesus and Jesus is applying that to stir and to awaken the church so they would persevere. And so Jesus is going to take part of that description and apply it to each church as a means of comfort or conviction for that church. So for example, if you look at Smyrna, Smyrna is about to face intense persecution that will result in some of the church dying. And so Jesus reveals himself in chapter 2 verse 8. The words of the first and the last who came who died and came to life. Well what's the point? You have a church they're about to face 10 days of, of intense persecution where very likely many of them will die. And the 10 days refers to, remember, 10, all the numbers most likely are symbolic as we're coming into this letter. 10 refers to completion. So it's not 10 days, but it's probably a, a complete period of time, a brief period of time in which they will experience tribulation. And yet Jesus says, I, I conquered death. I went to death. I took the keys, and now I raised from the dead, and I'm alive forevermore. Don't worry about death. It will not separate you from the love of God. And so see, this description that Jesus gives to each of the letters is to meant to move them, to stir them to faithfulness, to perseverance, or correction, like in Pergamum, when he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword in chapter 12. Well, Pergamum is compromising. They're beginning to entertain teachers like the Nicolaitans and, and uh, prophet from like Balaam that's, enhanced, or that's teaching sexual morality and idolatry. So Jesus says, I have a sword. And it's not just for those outside the church. If you want to continue down this path, you will experience this sword. That's just, I mean, just, do you hear that? That blows our mind oftentimes when we think about church, because so often we're like, well, we're good, we like church, we come, you know, we'll just, we'll just kind of go around and, and do the normal routine. We'll come in, we'll listen to a sermon, listen to songs, go home. Repeat next week. But here he said, look, if you, wanna, if you want to begin compromising, if you want to entertain false teachings, there is a sword. And so Jesus gives this description of himself that's meant to, to stir the church. Also, we see Jesus has intimate knowledge of each church. To Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 2, he commends them for their endurance and how they test those who come to teach. To Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10, he tells them, in the future, you're going to have 10 days of tribulation. In chapter 2, verse 13 of Pergamum, he looks to the past and he says, uh, he commends them for holding fast his name and not denying the faith when Antipas, who possibly was the pastor of that church, was killed. And so he, he knows. He knows what's happened in the past. He knows what they're, what they're going through right now. He knows what the future is. Jesus knows the church. We also see that Jesus sees the church for who they really are. Jesus looks at Smyrna, and he says, look, I, 
I, I know you feel poor, but you're rich. To Sardis, he looks at them. Now just imagine. To Sardis, he looks at them and says, you, you think you're alive? You're dead. To Laodicea, they think they're rich and prosperous. The, the, the money they raise each week is just through the offerings. I mean, it's great. Their new building project, it's looking wonderful. And, and they're going, man, we're rich, we're prosperous. And Jesus turns in chapter 3, he says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So the point is, we don't, we don't fool Jesus. He sees us exactly for who we are. We might trick each other, but we never fool Jesus. So just pause for a moment. Just, Jesus knows the churches. He knows us. He sees us because he's with us, because he loves us, because he counts us, his bride and his body. He knows our every sin, our every struggle, and our every joy, and our every victory. He knows us because he's with us. Isn't that encouraging? It's comforting. But there's also conviction then too, right? If we begin to walk away, he knows that. Now as a husband, as the bridegroom preparing his bride for Revelation 19, where we have the wedding feast, he's determined to purify us also, to make us holy. And we'll see that as we go through. So the first thing we see, just Jesus knows the church. So take heart. He knows us and he loves us. And his desire is for us to grow and to persevere in the faith. Um, so every church has a commendation also. There's commending. Last week we read in chapter 1, verse 9, uh, John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. And so what we said is perseverance is the way we live out our heavenly citizenship here on earth in the tribulation. All throughout the New Testament, all throughout Revelation, life on earth between the first and second coming of Jesus is counted the tribulation. And so he says the way we live is perseverance. And if we were to summarize the commendations to all of these churches, we could summarize them in one word, perseverance. That's what he commends. Look at chapter 2, verse 2 in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Chapter 2, verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently. He commends them for their perseverance. Chapter 2, verse 13 with Pergamum. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith when Antipas was killed. So he commends them for their perseverance. To Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Again, do you see? It's commending the, the, the perseverance. Chapter 3, verse 8, Philadelphia. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Again, perseverance. He commends the church for persevering in the faith and for persevering in the word. And to persevere is to be a faithful witness to Jesus. That's what it is. It's to hold fast to his name no matter what the trials come. Smyrna is facing uh, is persecution. Philadelphia is facing persecution. Pergamum, one of their members, maybe pastor, has been killed and, and they've pressed on they have counted christ more precious more costly more glorious than the things of this world and therefore they press on perseverance is the fruit of faith that's what real faith in jesus does as it holds on 
to the promises of Jesus, to the truth of Jesus, it stirs us, it presses us on to continue to hold on to the truths of Jesus. The spouse who perseveres in the marriage when it's hard, when it's difficult, demonstrates their love and their faithfulness. And as we, as a bride, as the body of Christ, we press on in the tribulation. And when members are arrested, and when members are killed within the church, and the world says, why do you keep pressing on? And we go, because because of our King, because of our Savior, because He has conquered death, because He is more costly than anything you can ever take from us here on this earth. So our perseverance demonstrates our love Jesus, our faith in Jesus. It shows the world the value of Jesus. It shows his glory. So we spend a lot of time in commendations, but we're going to move on because that's not all he says. He also has a rebuke, rebuking compromise and complacency. If Jesus commends perseverance, he rebukes those who do not persevere. And as we said, five out of the seven churches are rebuked. Smyrna and Philadelphia are not. Those are the two churches, number two and number six on the list. They're not rebuked. Where they're encouraged to continue to press on in the tribulation that they're experiencing. So let's just do a quick run through. We're going to run through all seven letters. Give the brief, or or five of the letters. We'll give the brief description of, of what they're struggling in. Ephesus. Strong in truth weak in love chapter 2 verse 4 jesus says i have this against you you've abandoned the love you had at first pergamum is holding firm but they're beginning to compromise verse 14 and 15 they're entertaining the teachings of balaam entertaining the teachings of the nicolaitans we don't know a lot about them we're guessing that it's very similar to what jezebel is teaching in thyatira and what uh, the, the, the teachings of Balaam are leading to sexual morality, leading to idolatry. Thyatira is full of good works, but they're tolerant of false faith. They have a woman or a group of people uh, named Jezebel, probably not actually named Jezebel, but personifies who Jezebel was in the Old Testament. And she is bringing forth false teaching. She now has children within the church. So most likely these are people who have bought into the, the lies that she is, is, is giving. So they now are, are like her children, also propagating these lies and leading people into sinful activities. Sardis they're at the point of spiritual death. Jesus says, you look alive, but you are dead. He says in chapter 3, 4, there's only a few of you who have not soiled your garments, which means majority of the church is dead. There's like this handful of people who are faithful. So if that's this church, um, you're dead, you're dead, and these front two rows, you're alive. That's what that looks like here. So sorry, I mean, that's good for you. Um, Laodicea, they're, they're not cold, they're not hot, they're lukewarm. And Jesus says, look, I, I just, I just want to vomit you out of my mouth. Just think about those words. So, so what, does that, what does that even mean? I want to vomit you. 
Was it because, is Jesus telling them, I wish you were hot, I wish you were cold, either believe or don't believe. I don't think that's necessarily what he's saying. So all of these churches, we could dive in more to the historical surroundings of them and, and what is happening. But just north of Laodicea is a town called Hierapolis. They have hot springs. These hot springs are known for healing. Just south of them is Colossae, which has these fresh water springs, and they have fresh water, cool water, that is made for refreshing and encouragement. And in between them is Laodicea. They don't have anything. They don't have the hot springs for healing. They don't have the cold springs for refreshment. They're just right there in the middle, kind of good for nothing. There's no life. There's no movement. Uh, they look just like the world. And so Jesus says, you're worthless. I stand at the door and knock. So, so what does that mean? I kind of get the feeling it means he's not actually in the church. So here we have Jesus coming. And there's a rebuke for these churches. And so uh, we, could, we could summarize it down in two, two words. One, complacency. And, and we can see that in Ephesus. Ephesus, full of believers. In fact, notice, Ephesus is full of believers. Laodicea, full of unbelievers. That's, that's, that's the spectrum that we're moving, the, tra- the trajectory. Ephesus looks great on paper. They endure with evil people, meaning they're patient. Uh, They test their teachers and apostles. They're not growing weary. They probably have a great statement of faith. They have amazing policy manuals, great top-notch teachers. They gather on Wednesday nights, have fabulous times of teaching. But, But they've abandoned their first love. Now, what does that mean? Well, it probably means several things. It probably means they're not loving Christ which if they're not loving Christ, and they're probably not loving one another. And many commentators actually believe it, it means they're actually not giving the gospel out anymore also. If you go back to like Acts 19, we see the birth of, of really the church in Ephesus, and the gospel is growing so much that it has a huge impact on the, the temple, the idolatrous temples there on Artemis. In fact, there's a revolt in, in being taken place in Acts 19 from the the iron, uh, the, the metal workers in Ephesus because many people are no longer worshiping Artemis. And so they're having a revolt. They're angry. They're trying to arrest Paul. The gospel is exploding in Ephesus. But now, 50 years later, we see that the church has become a holy huddle. And they gather. They're very insul- insular. They don't look outside. They don't love those outside very monastic in that type of sense. Let's just come, we'll do our thing, we'll focus on ourselves, and in focusing so much just on truth and knowledge, they actually haven't looked at how they live it out. And so they're actually not even loving one another well. And, and just to say, you can't actually study the Bible too much. Like, that's not their problem. It's not, oh man, they just spent time in Bible studies all the time. Um, no, that's not actually a problem. It's when you don't apply the Bible that's the problem. So it wasn't that they went too deep in the Bible and, oh, man, they were too heady. They actually didn't go deep enough. They stopped short. They read the Bible, but they didn't actually ever apply the Bible. That was the problem that we have here. They're very heady, but they have no heart. And that's not how the Word of God is meant to move us. So hear this. Um, a lack of love for one another 
inside and outside the church is a clear sign we're beginning to become complacent in our faith. So I, I think we just need to then kind of say, okay, where are we at that? Are, are we complacent? Do we love one another? And quickly, many of you will say, well, of course we do. Did you not see our fellowship time? I totally went to the back of the room, and that guy went to the front of the room. We went from the left and to the right. Cool. What about Monday? What about Tuesday? What about Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and at, you know, 12 o'clock after church on Sunday? How do you love? See, don't, don't just give yourself the pass. Oh, I'm fine. I love. Well, do you? Who? Who do you love? Name them. Write it down. How do you love them? Who are you sharing the gospel with right now? Who are you engaging for the purpose of sharing the gospel with right now? Like I was going through here earlier just going, man, I think I'm kind of complacent at this moment. Like who am I actively engaging the gospel with outside the church at this very moment? I have lots of relationships that I'm building, and I could say, well, I'm engaging them all, and, and, but am I? Am I making traction? I, you know, I was thinking earlier, and I was like, man, I, I think I've slowed down on traction. Now, admittedly, we're all going to have kind of our times where we go up and down, but, but are we moving towards engaging other people? Are we moving towards evangelizing inside and outside the church? How are we doing it? Who are we doing it? Don't just say, well, yeah, I'm loving. Are you? Are we? Just has hard words for this church, which we'll come to. We can't just say, yep, we're good. Think through this. Pray about it. Go, God, is there any area of complacency in me? Am I, am I just going through the church routine? Because I think we all do that, right? Let's just be honest. At some point, Sunday, okay, got to go to church. Like, did you wake up and go, man, we're coming to church today. We're coming to hear the word, the fellowship, to be encouraged for the purpose of growing in our faith, to expanding the kingdom, and you're so excited? Like, is that what stirred your heart today? I don't even need an alarm on Sunday. Just, just wake up. A lot of times it's, man, I'm tired. I don't make it. I don't make it again. I don't make it again. So I just said, are we complacent? Where are you on the complacency? Just, just pray through that. Five out of seven churches, it happens. So this isn't like an abnormal thing. We need to realize there is a temptation here. Am I aware of the temptation? Am I fighting against the temptation? Number two, compromise. We see this. So complacency is one problem. Compromise is another huge problem. In Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 14, we see that some are beginning to compromise. He says, I have the, a few things against you that you have some. So again, so when we're looking at the compromising uh, trajectory here, we have uh, Pergamum, who has some who are compromising, all the way to Sardis, which has a few who have not soiled their garments. Do you see the trajectory? Like, these people, Pergamum, only a few have, so they're like step one. Four steps later is Sardis, and they're, they're dead now because they only actually have a few people who love Jesus. Most people have all compromised in the faith in that church. In, in chapter 3, verse 4, we see the church has comp.
pray for Bruce. Father, we love Bruce. Thank you for the men and women who are around him right now. Lord, Lord be with Bruce. I would pray for your spirit just to be upon him, comfort him, to bring healing. Lord, we pray that they do not hit his head hard. We pray there's no damage there. I would just ask for your help and your comfort for him right now. Strengthen him, strengthen his body. Lord, thank you just for the members that we have who are just attending and loving and caring right now. Lord, just pray, uh, Lord, as you are the great physician, that you would, that you would take care of him. You would bring healing to his body. God, thank you that we can turn to you and that we know that you're here and that you're with us and that you see and that you are the great physician. In your name, Jesus, amen. Just so everyone knows, Mitch is a PA, um, Jason is a doctor, Carolyn is a nurse. <laughs> We're well prepped right there, I think. Uh, You know, they never really tell you what to do at these moments. Just so you know, also, Daryl, <clears throat> Daryl's at the hospital. He was here earlier today, made the coffee. Uh, we were sitting in the back and just had some pain. So we went over to the fire department and uh, medics came. So they decided it was best to go ahead and take him up there. Um,
Bruce is one of the men who have been here since the beginning um, in this church. He's been an elder in this church. Uh, he, he loves God very, very deeply. Um, his wife passed away, I think, three, is it three? Is it three, three years ago, Bev Anderson? Uh, they have helped out in almost every way within this church. Um, he's been battling Parkinson's now for, for a number of years. Uh, and uh, just a dear, dear man that loves Jesus, cares very much about Jesus. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's pray again just for, for Bruce, the, the paramedics or the, the firemen are there, uh, same firemen from earlier, and, and so let's just pray for them. Uh, they have wisdom and, and just know, like, what, what is the course of action to take here, um, and then we'll figure out what we do. Uh, Father, Father, we thank you that we can, that we can just turn to you now. And Lord, as we've already said, that this is your church. Um, we are your bride, your body, your, your son, Jesus, the one who has conquered life and death. Lord, he walks amongst us. He's with us. We know that. So Father, I just pray once again that you'd bring comfort to Bruce bring healing to his body. Be with the, the firemen now and the paramedics as they just, as they give attention to him, they determine what's the best course of action. We pray for healing. We pray that you would just touch him, heal him, restore his strength. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that he is, Lord. And we just also, in the same time, just lift up Daryl, who's up at the hospital. Bless him. Thank you for the doctors who are looking after him. Thank you that we can turn to you. Thank you that you are always our tower of refuge. Lord, we praise you. And in your name, Jesus, amen. Um, so how about, how about we, we'll, we'll pause and uh, we'll go into communion, and then we'll go into uh, into uh, just the closing, just where we're at. There's no way we're going to get through this message anyway. I'm going to ask men. I don't even know if any of our men left. So uh, whoever's helping out with communion to come forward and help with communion. And as we take communion, we do so because at this moment we remember the gospel. And, and, and just kind of, the gospel is what frames all these letters that we're looking at.